Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. So we'll talk about the environment, which might seem to be a rather obvious jumping on a familiar global bandwagon, uh, but one which immediately raises some, um, I guess, a bit of terms. We're going to reconfigure this out of the current Western uh, materialistic paradigm into the Quranic, uh, what reveals uh, the fitri landscape of vocabulary. What do we mean by environment? We're going to look at the old terminology. Immediately obvious, you might think, because the modern Arabic word for environment, Biya, is the modern Arabic word. We went back in time. Time machine, like the time of Memo Ghazali or Fakhruddin Razi, and we start talking about Bita, his conception of environment is not that. Uh, I quite like the modern Turkish word, Cevre, which really means that which is around us, our surroundings, and I guess it comes to a process of translation from the word environment, that which is around us. Uh, so I'm going to speak on that basis. But if we're going to use, again, our vocabulary, Maybe we could say this is approximately the meaning of the Arabic root al-Ihata and the divine name al-Muhid. So often we struggle to translate the 99 beautiful names. Al-Muhid, what do we mean? It's in the Qur'an. But al-Muhid, the one who surrounds, the one who encompasses. So does it sound good in English? The encompasser with a capital E. Maybe the environment of the capital E. Not referring to the material world, but referring to everything uh, that is that exists, that has being, and more hits which surrounds. This would work particularly well in the context of the Quranic worldview, which does a rather strange thing with the natural world. Remember, the Quran emerges in the context of an essentially magic or occult-based tribal paganism, where a system of sacrifices existed to ward off certain scary consequences of not making sacrifices to various tribal deities, and where nature seemed to be connected to many of those tribal deities, and there was a superstitious belief that there were jinn and fairies and hippies in certain trees or rocks. It was an animistic shamanistic kind of culture, and actually one based very much on fear. Not really much sense of mercy or of love, but the deities of the pagan Arab pantheon were overwhelmingly vengeful, and we even have some examples of ancient Arabian idols in our Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, and they're designed to scare you, big eyes and aggressive gestures, and they are not consoling figures. So you might think that Qur'an comes in that world and would then try to point everybody upwards, away from nature, towards the empyrean, and say, Laysa kamithi shape, nothing resembles him, and have nothing to do with the world of nature and regard it as a kind of dark principle in which these fairies and sprites and physical representations of, of divine principles have their being. And some forms of Christianity had done that, not because it's really there in the Gospels, but because of certain late Greek Hellenistic 
mystery religion, which we probably do holistic, in other words, the body and nature were forces of darkness, <coughs> you had to liberate yourself from that upwards into the realm of light, dualistic or Manichaean system. Islam never did that. And one of the great paradoxes, maybe the ongoing mysteries of the Holy Quran, from I suppose a historian's viewpoint, is that it valorizes nature, or we might say that which is represented by the name Al-Muhid, in a very, very striking uh, and extraordinary way. We have in England, despite everything, despite the publicity, disorganized communities, a steady stream of people, educated people, who come into Islam from a wide variety of religious backgrounds. In our office at my little college, we've had people who have come to Islam from Jewish ancestry, from Hindu ancestry, from Sikh ancestry. It's part of the strange paradox of modern Islam that we have this stream of people coming in. And they come from various angles, but one thing that appeals to them when they read the Quran is its endless evocations of the natural world. All Muslims often somehow don't spot that or they take it for granted. But it's huge. In the Fihak Samawati wal Awadi wa Tilati Nadi wa Nahari na Ayati bi Uli Alfad, in the way the heavens and the earth are created and the succession of night and day are signs for people of insight, for people of reflection. And the Dinyat Kuruna Rahman Rahuan Wala Junubi him where to Fakaruna Fi Khalki Samawati wal Ab, those who remember God standing and sitting and on their sides and think about the way the heavens and the earth are created. Subhanak Mahalakta Hada Batala. Glory be to you, transcendent are you. The natural world is being contemplated, and our response is, SubhanAllah, high above anything. Uh, you have not created this in vain. So this language of ayat is absolutely the foundation of our theology. We look around ourselves, and we see not just things, but things that are pointing somewhere. And in fact, in their myriad ways, all pointing in the same direction, namely towards Al-Muhit, towards the One, who is the ground of the being of the environment. So on the one hand, the Qur'an is polemicizing against these dark mystery religions with their scary deities in favor of Ar-Rahman, who is beyond all comparison. But on the other hand, it does this surprising thing by really valorizing the natural world again and again and saying, Contemplate these things. You'll not see any disorder, any asymmetry, any chaos in the creation of Ar-Rahman, the All-Merciful. And Surah Ar-Rahman, those beautiful evocations, one of the most popular surahs of the Quran. Again and again, we find in the Meccan period, in the Medinan period, this insistence that we recenter ourselves and focus on the sacred contemplate this tradition of tafakkur, reflection, contemplation, meditation, by pondering the symmetries and the beauty of the creative world, an aesthetic kind of argument. And of course it underpins the art of Islamic civilization, which is based on bringing to the surface of things the underlying order which is of divine origin. So uh, arabesques, tessellations, geometric patterns, which remind somebody in a mosque or looking at a carpet or a textile or a piece of ceramic, but when you look at the surface of things, the miracle is there, because the surface of things is only possible because of underlying physical laws, which Islamic art brings to the surface to remind us of the symmetry of everything, from an atom to a snowflake to a tree. It's, there's no tafawut, there's no disorder in all of this. So 
He is transcendent, but the world is absolutely sacred. And then we find, and some of these hadiths give us pause, a whole range of sayings and actions of the Blessed Prophet where he engages with the physical world, and particularly with the animal kingdom. And sometimes these are stories that we tell to our children, that uh, the man who took the baby birds out of the nest was condemned, or put the baby birds back into the nest. And the famous hadith where the Holy Prophet is walking through Medina, and there's a crowd gathering and a commotion. And he says, what's happening? And they say, this man's camel has gone mad. And the camel is in an enclosure. The camel is a big, dangerous creature, and it's foaming at the mouth. And uh, they're afraid to go in to try and calm it down. And the Holy Prophet, goes into the enclosure and looks at the animal and puts his blessed hand on the camel's head, looks at it, and the animal is still. And then Hadith, he turns around and says, this animal tells me that it has been overworked and overburdened. And the owner of the camel hears about this, bursts into tears, comes to the Holy Prophet, and for those of the camel's, camel's life, it's kind of experiencing a five-star camel lifestyle with nothing to carry and its own fodder every day and looked after. Of course, so many of these hadiths about responsibility to animals, you know, the story of the woman who has forgiven her sins because she came to a well and there was a thirsty dog and she gave the dog something to drink. Major sins wiped out by kindness to animals and the animal kingdom. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hadiths like this. That's something for the ancient world little bit surprising. You don't find that in the New Testament anywhere. There are lots of Christians who write about creation, care, and Christianity, but they can't find proof texts in the New Testament. They say the story of the Gadarene swine, which they find embarrassing, but Sayyidina Isa, al-Islam, casts out unclean spirits into the souls of a herd of pigs that then rushes over a cliff. There isn't anything like that in the Sirah or in the Sunnah. Instead, care for creation and these hadith of the camel, but there's other hadiths as well. There seems to be some sort of communication. Now you could say, well, the Holy Prophet is just intuiting with his delight of prophecy that this camel has been abused and therefore it's misbehaving. Fine. A secular explanation, if you like. But then you go to the Quran itself that says all kinds of strange things about the created world. Uh, the famous verse about Sayyidina Dawood, for instance. We placed at the disposal of David the mountains and the birds giving praise. So David and the mountains and the birds are giving praise. How does a mountain give praise? Did you have to have a niya? Doesn't there have to be a consciousness? What could that mean? Well, the ulama, for instance, Ibn Juzay in his tafsir, think about this. Does something solid like a mountain have ten years? Can it discern? What sort of tasbih does a mountain give? Ibn Juzay says, well, there's literalists who says that's what it says, therefore Allah creates what he calls an idraq, a perception in the mountain at that time, so that it gives praise says. That's how we must interpret it. But others who prefer a metaphorical interpretation, Tariq and Majaz, say if Allah, if, if the mountain was capable of thinking, then it would be giving praise. 
That's rather speculative because it's simply not what the text says. And other verses about the birds giving praise and every animal that crawls upon the earth gives praise. What does this mean? Well, you remember Noah, we had an interesting discussion about this. Where he's talking about Mount, the Mount Ohud. And the prophet says, Ohud is a mountain that loves us and which we love. Now, if you've been to the holy cities, and also to the third holy city, which is the Mount of Olives, is also a very spiritually magnetic place, you will have some kind of sense of the the majestic presence of those mountains, Jebel Amur, Sabir, uh, Jebel Ohud, and the Mount of Olives, Jebel Zaytun. Uh, there is something there. And a friend of mine has the good fortune to live in Medina. And in the evening, he likes to sit outside in his garden with his guests. And there's Mount Ohud in the background. And it's kind of glowing. And I've never seen that with any other mountain in the world. It just, you can see the whole thing. It's a kind of glow. And he says, I believe people in Medina would always live to this is a sign of the specialness of the mountain. Allahu Alam. It's a bit like the uh, native Australians reverence for, for Mount Uluru, Ayers Rock, which is, as anybody, even most half-bitten atheist goes there, feels this is something spiritual. That sounds a bit primitive, animistic, there's some kind of spirit in the mountain. It's not that. There is a presence, has something to do with the unseen world that we can't really configure in our minds. But there's a presence there. So what does it mean? Imam Nawawi says, how can the Holy Prophet be loved by Mount Ohud? The Holy Prophet is saying this. He loves the mountain, the mountain loves him. It's because Allah has created a tamiz. He doesn't say he says a tamiz in that mountain so that it is capable of loving that. It's within Allah's power to do this. The hadith, well in hadith, the early prophet, alayhi salam, is walking on Mount Tabir, outside Mecca. He used to love going on hikes, you might say, nowadays, instructing as he walked. Uh, and he's with those who become the first three Khulafat, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman. And he's discussing God. He's talking about the divine majesty, the holiness of the divine. And the mountain starts to shake until pebbles, Taharak and Hassan, pebbles start rolling down the mountain like an earthquake. The Holy Prophet stamps his foot and says, Askin Tabir, Fama alayka illa nabiyyun wa siddiqun wa shahidan. Be calm, Tabir, for there is nothing on you, there's nobody on you except a prophet and a siddiq and two martyrs. This is, of course, a prophetic miracle, a prophecy of the future in many ways. But again, it's another of these things that make us, in our strictly monotheistic context, uneasy and puzzled. But the point is not to try and theologize this until you get to the, the essence of it. What does it really mean for the birds to give praise? Is it just a poetic way of saying that they're singing, but it's not really praise? Or does God mean what he says? That Ibn Jubay says the ulama have taken different this is not an animistic view, but it is something that indicates that in nature, which is made up of indications of the divine nature, there is something of al-muhit. 
this is a kind of mystical, intuitive, philosophical insight. You couldn't pin it down in formal doctrine. You might write a nice poem about it, but to try and say in Arpida terms exactly what this is probably shouldn't us, and probably shouldn't be attempted. But we know that there is a real sacrality in the physical world because the Holy Prophet is engaging with it and engaging with it and teaching people to engage with it. Well, that called he couldn't carry the in Ajr. They ask him, a messenger of Allah, shall we be rewarded for kindnesses done to animals? And he says, you'll be rewarded for some any good thing you do, for anything that has a wet liver. And the ulama, imagine, has a really great time with this. Uh, does that mean I can step on a cockroach? What about scorpions and worms and fish? Anyway, the point is, anything that is a kind of higher form of life that maybe has a brain, uh, has hukuk, has rights in Sharia, and the books of Fiqh do recognize that animals have rights. This is a modern <coughs> idea. Animal rights, a kind of fashionable new age thing, but it's certainly there in the Sharia. You can't just, in Islamic law, harm an animal the way the pagan Arabs used to do, brand um, it and cut its lips, and these practices which are prohibited beforehand, or the ancient Arabian practice of if you're in the desert feeling hungry and thirsty, you just take out your knife and you make a cut in the flank of your camel and you drink some of its blood and then you staunch it up with mud. This was one of the Jahili practices. All of these things are forbidden. So kindness to animals, a reverence for the signs of the natural world, and also in this slightly uncomfortable sense, the sense that the natural world is somehow part of the organic world. How that works, Allahu A'lam from the world of dreams, the world of the imagination, the world of the malakot, who knows, maybe it doesn't matter. It's like the world of the jinn, other things that do not concern us, we need to know nothing about them. But the point is, there is this reverence that the believer is one of those who walks gently upon the earth. The ibadul rahman yamshuna al-awdihawna The slaves of the all-compassionate God are those who walk gently upon the earth. And when the ignorant address them, they say peace. This is the first of all of those beautiful characterizations of the slaves of the All-Merciful. It's been the, this long list, famous list. So to be a slave of the All-Merciful, walk gently on the earth. Now this is uncontroversial. And throughout our history, the ulama and the awliya and the salihin have loved animals and have loved to treat creation gently and... Uh, they build mosques with little holes in the walls so that birds can nest in them. There's a mosque like that down the road from me when I lived in Istanbul. And creation care is just part of what it is to be Muslim. So on the basis of this, uh, we have, in Cambridge, decided to represent this tradition in the new mosque which we're building. Give you a practical example of what we can do about this today where we can go on long hikes, we can be amazed by the mountains. And South Africa, you've got a bigger environment than we have in England, from Cape Town to Kruger National Park. We don't have anything like that. But still, you walk around near my house. It's good for the, good for the soul. Here, you really see the Jalal, the majesty of creation. You're fortunate to find Ni'mah on the country. And engaging with a natural environment, which is more or less explicitly fought by modernity. 
infidelity arose in order to uh, harness the powers of nature to serve the interests of man, which in an atheistic culture means maximizing utility, pleasure, more gadgets, more fast trains, more stuff. And we all know what consequences that has for the environment, the capital E, because you dig up all of this stuff from the ground, not mentioning any names or places, but I saw some very strange looking hills as I drove in this morning from the airport. This is what Benny Adam does. Dig up the treasures, the kunals from, from God's earth, and then you make stuff, you make money out of that, and then you have to dig other holes to put the waste back in afterwards, the landfill. That's our activity. The major activity of Benny Adam now on earth is not praise, but it's making big holes and digging up, up stuff, and then making other holes and filling it with other stuff. The only difference being that the original stuff didn't produce pollutants, but our stuff definitely does. Strange thing for a whole civilization to be doing. But in any case, amidst this catastrophe caused by human greed and a lack of reverence for the holiness of Al-Muhid and the natural order, we have, as believers, to try and at least symbolically push back against this by being less wasteful, by using organic fabric by eating healthy. These are all things that scholars are familiar with and are part of the Muslim way. Fasting, uh, a modest lifestyle. Don't take too much of the world's resources. The average Bangladeshi consumes only 170th as much of the world's resources as the average American. And the gulf is getting bigger. So be with the, the humble and the poor as much as you can. But what we're doing in Cambridge, just to, to finish off session. We need a new mosque. We've been rather slow. Other mosques, other towns in England have nice fancy mosques. We don't really. So we thought, well, let's use this opportunity to do something not just that keeps the Muslim congregation out of the rain. We have maybe six or seven thousand Muslims in the Cambridge area. Not a huge community, but it's growing. Uh, but let's do something that symbolizes religion not tagging along behind an essentially secular environmentalist movement, uh, but actually leading it. Let's lead the way. Let's be maybe the UK's premier religious structure that cares about the environment and says this is the number one threat to humanity in the world. From a Sharia point of view, that's not problematic because it's the Quran. We are supposed to be the defenders of creation ones who walk lightly on the earth, the one who's found the communicated with animals, not a problem, should unite a community. So when we proposed the idea of an eco-mosque, we actually found that, they, unusually, there couldn't really be objections from any section of the Muslim community. It's quite an achievement to find something on which there is no fitna at all. Some people think it's kind of weird, but it's not... Uh, an area of argument. So alhamdulillah, that, that was nice. And then we decided what should the eco-features of this mosque be. Now we discovered that, and Cambridge is one of the world's centers for green technology innovation, uh, so quite an appropriate place to have an eco-mosque. We discovered that there are some technologies which are fantastically expensive and which actually generate only a little of the the carbon emission reductions uh, that, that you're looking for. And so, as in most things, and this is a Sharia principle, the golden mean. 
So some of the really fancy technologies, ground sourcing pumps and various kinds of reclaiming minerals from sewage and who knows what, we weren't going to do that. Very few people actually do that. It's a gimmick. But instead, there are some green technologies which actually turn out to be pioneered in many cases by Muslim scientists and technologists and companies. So a local Muslim business in Cambridge is donating to us the photovoltaic array which sits on the roof, which will generate 35 to 40% of our electricity requirements. And on downtime, should be able to even generate an income by uh, feeding back into the, the national grid. So <coughs> in that, you have a local Muslim businessman who's donating this, uh, and it's fabricated in Pakistan to European Union specifications, and it's going to be on the roof. And uh, that was a sign of how the community kind of was coming together on this. We have air source heat pumps that do recycling and warmth, and technologies called COOLTH, which I'm sure can't possibly be a word, but they say you've got warmth, you've got COOLTH, so you're going to get COOLTH in the summer. Right. So we're getting COOLTH from this recycling thing. Rainwater recycling. No shortage of that in Cambridge. Uh, you get months and months and months, gallons of it. Uh, and so we had to uh, figure out how to get that into the war areas without too much expensive an interesting question such as water that has been used for resort, can you then use it to flush toilets? Muftis kind of scratched their head and said apparently you can do that. So that's also a safety. So rainwater collection, uh, water recycling, and then at the end um, any of the grey water gets distributed onto the garden, which we have a nice garden that uh, evokes the gardens of paradise that has some of the plants and fruits that are mentioned in the Holy Quran that surrounds surrounds our masjid. Uh, ventilation is passive. So the building is designed, as were many buildings in the traditional Islamic world before the ambiguous invention of air conditioning, to uh, capture air from the prevailing direction, direct it passively through the structures and cavities of the building, and then gently to eject it at the other side. Uh, so during the Tarawih prayers, which in the summer, on a hot summer evening, even in Cambridge, is generally when a mosque systems are most under stress. And it can actually be quite unpleasant because they can be really packed. We did worst case uh, scenario modelings of what it would be like if we had a thousand people in the mosque opening the various apertures that we have. And it turns out actually to be perfectly reasonable. You don't need air conditioning. Pundit enough, air conditioning monstrously wasteful of power. Uh, the southern states of America use 30% of their electricity gigantically wasteful. So, alhamdulillah, we don't need to do that. So, uh, and the use of natural materials in the construction. Not getting fancy stuff from the other side of the world uh, and causing more carbon emissions through the ships that have to bring it to us, but instead locally sourced materials. Uh, and the timber, which is the basis of the fabrication, is sourced from renewable uh, uh, forests, sustainably harvested forests in Scandinavia. And the fabrication is done in Switzerland, and it's assembled like a gigantic kind of flat pack thing in, in Cambridge. And the structure is now essentially in place. So the idea is, when it's open, we will have, free of any additional charge, not just a place to keep the Muslims of Cambridge out of the rain, and a place to get married and have a sandwich, and uh, all of the rest of the usual functions of an Islamic center, but also a symbol of religion's participation in combating the world's number one threat, 
melting of the ice caps, the death of the polar bears, all of the pollutants that are in the world's oceans. Everybody knows the story. It's uh, one of the most depressing stories around. Here is religion pushing back against that, not for utilitarian human survivalist reasons, but because it's a religious mandate. Religion is obliging you to care for creation. These are traditional Islamic practices. So the little holes that I saw in the wall of the uh, mosque, the Hayasma Jami, down the road from me in Istanbul when I lived there, kept the bird's nest in the mosque. We've got those as well in the Cambridge Mosque, high up, just high enough for larks to nest, because larks are now becoming endangered in southern England, so we'll be doing our bit for the, the ecosystem by allowing uh, birds to nest in the structure, and so on and so on. So great when school children come to visit the mosque, great when non-Muslims come to visit the mosque, because they'll see religion in action, practically benefiting not just one religious community, but all of humanity. The thing about the environment is that irrespective of your race, and gender, and point of view, and religion, it threatens us all equally. So this is what we're doing, and it's about half completed. So along with the Muslim College, which is my second headache in Cambridge at the moment, uh, we're trying to turn Cambridge into a symbol of Islam not looking backwards and endlessly fretting over the loss of the golden age, or looking forward to some fundamentalist misconceived utopia, but actually practically benefiting not just uh, the Ummah, but uh, all of humanity. So if you're in Cambridge, and South Africans travel a lot, do stop by and visit our eco-mosque opening in November next year. And it really is good to see not just Muslims, but non-Muslims really embracing the, the project. We've had dozens of donations for the masjid from non-Muslims. And you can tell from the website, people leave comments, here is my £10, I'm an atheist, but this is beautiful and it's doing a bit for the environment. Uh, it's, it's good to see a mosque actually functioning as a symbol of, of being jammed out with what a mosque is supposed to be. That which universally brings people together, rather than symbolizes one community's proud uh, difference and determination uh, not to uh, engage positively with neighbors. So that's my theory about the environment, and then what we're actually trying to do about the environment in the relatively small-scale local project of building a mosque in an English town. But maybe there's some ideas here that maybe you're ahead of us in South Africa and you're already incorporating some of these things. But it is nice to see how, without much additional expense, you can turn a mosque into a symbol that kind of represents the future for, for everybody, inshallah. I think. <laughs> وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار وادخلنا الجنة مع الأبرار يا عزيز يا رفار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وحبلنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب وصلى الله على سيدنا ومولانا وحبيبنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين Cambridge Muslim College Training the next generation of Muslim thinkers